as far as I'm concerned, the beast is still very much alive today after 1,500 years, going back to the first ever story with St. Columba and his water monster in the River Ness. controversy continues to this day. The bottom line is we still haven't managed to convince any zoologist, any museum or any laboratory that there's something there. It's basically down like Bigfoot, like UFOs, it's down to a hardcore of dedicated believers, hunters, uh, adventurers if you like. It touches something in the psyche. Man's impressed by things bigger than himself. And the Loch Ness Monster fits that genre. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with Another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Big, big thanks to all the folks out there who tuned in for the Season 7 premiere and helped spread the word that BOA Audio is back. You guys are awesome. Trust me, folks, the ride has only just begun. Very excited about this edition of the program because... Over the years, as many of you know, we have explored many different cryptids on the show, but the creature that we are going to examine here on the program this week has thus far eluded us. It has only sort of been discussed tangentially, and finally we're going to put the microscope square on this iconic mystery. I'm talking about, of course, the infamous Loch Ness Monster, and we are going to look at Nessie in depth with our guest, Roland Watson, author of the book, The Water Horses of Loch Ness, and making this conversation with Roland even more amazing. He is coming to us direct from Edinburgh, Scotland, just a few short hours away from the Loch Ness Monster's proverbial stomping grounds at Loch Ness. It would be nearly impossible for me to give you the full rundown on this marathon conversation because we are covering Nessie from a myriad of angles. But let me just give you some of the tent poles of the interview. We're going to learn about the evolution of the Loch Ness monster in mainstream popularity. We're going to find out about the many, many ways that monster hunters have tried to prove its existence over the years. We'll learn about the controversial surgeon's photo, which I'm sure many of you have seen, that allegedly shows the creature. We'll talk about the various theories surrounding what Nessie might be, including the paranormal Nessie theory, and the concept that Nessie is a remnant dinosaur. Given that Roland has been studying the Loch Ness Monster for a very long time, and visited Loch Ness numerous times, we'll speculate on what the best way would be to hunt the monster, and we'll also find out about how the locals at Loch Ness feel about the mystery after all these years. Plus, of course, tons and tons more. This truly is a jam-packed and comprehensive conversation 
with a researcher who has both chronicled Nessie lore and helped keep the mystery of the monster alive and kicking in this new millennium. I'm talking about Roland Watson, the man behind the book, The Water Horses of Loch Ness. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Roland Watson, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Roland Watson lives a four-hour drive from Loch Ness in Edinburgh, Scotland. By day, he works in software engineering and holds a Bachelor of Science degree in astronomy. He has been interested in the Loch Ness Monster and mysteries in general since he was a boy, and has never ceased to believe that there is something big and mysterious in Scotland's largest lake. Therefore, outside of work and family commitments, he seeks to apply critical thinking to the Loch Ness mystery from the believer's point of view. Those thoughts, as well as his research in libraries and at the Loch Shore, are found at his blog, lochnessmystery.blogspot.com, and in his book, The Water Horses of Loch Ness. One more time, here is Roland's website, lochnessmystery, all one word, .blogspot.com. Check it out. And with all that said, my friends, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on March 19, 2012, Roland Watson, talking about the Loch Ness Monster, on BOA Audio, Season 7. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio, Season 7. Very excited about this edition of the program. It's amazing we've done seven years of this show and have yet to really do a focused episode on specifically the Loch Ness Monster, and that's what we're going to do here on the program this week. Very thrilling, very exciting for me. The Loch Ness Monster is, of course, a staple of the world of the paranormal, and as we've talked about on the program, really has had its ebbs and flows in popularity. It seems like it's bubbling up a little bit, no pun intended, in recent years, and maybe our guest here is a big part of that. He is Roland Watson, the author of the book, The Water Horses of Loch Ness. And he's the man behind the wildly popular blog, The Loch Ness Mystery. And you can find that at lochnessmystery.blogspot.com. And finally, we're going to dive into Loch Ness and really hunt down this monster and try and get some answers about this really iconic case in the world of the esoteric. So welcome to the program, Roland. It's going to be a very fun conversation, I'm sure. Thanks, Tim. Glad to be here. Well, we usually start out with, you know, the bio, the background. I find it particularly exciting, too, that not only are you a serious, hardcore Loch Ness monster researcher and, and author, but you're right there in Scotland, which makes it even cooler because you can give us some real amazing first-hand perspective. But talk a little bit, you know, about the bio, the background. Who is Roland Watson? How did you get interested in the Loch Ness monster mystery? Well, I've been there. I am a Scotsman. I've been living, born and bred in Scotland. I'm a four-hour drive from Loch Ness, as it turns out. I live in Edinburgh. I'm married with two kids. And I've been interested in Loch Ness Monster since I was a kid, basically. So we're going back to the 1970s, really, uh, which is a pretty heady time for the Loch Ness Monster. So it was quite natural that dinosaur-loving kids like myself would kind of latch onto that subject. So I was quite heavily into it. I got all the books I could and studied the subject in depth, even as a kid. So I was a kind of nerdy kind of kid in those days. <laughs> and that's kind of gone through the years because I'm, I'm by trade a software engineer. So I'm a kind of, I like to think of myself as a kind of logical, clear thinker. Yeah. 
and like to apply some critical thinking to the Loch Ness Monster. Now, to tell you something there, I, I was interested in the Loch Ness Monster. This went through in the 1980s. Then I went through a bit of a dip. I concentrated on my career, my family, which is not a, too surprising. Mm-hmm. And I came out the, the other end of it with, with two kind of kids that could look after themselves. Uh, these few years passed, and I took a look around me. I'd always believed there was something strange in Loch Ness. And I've come to this point that I looked around two years ago and I saw what a pretty barren landscape in terms of that particular cryptid. And I thought, well, now's the time to kind of maybe kickstart a blog because I, I reckon I had a few things to say about this and I was trying to kind of re- re- reclaim the Loch Ness monster. It's my kind of mission statement if you look at my blog. Mm-hmm. So I've been building up the articles and, and so on, and basically that's where I find myself today. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting how you point that out, because I've kind of noticed that too in recent years, that, you know, the Loch Ness Monster, this that was huge. You know, I was born in 79, so I missed the whole 70s paranormal boom, but even when I was growing up in the 80s and the 90s, you know, the Loch Ness Monster was one of the top, like, five paranormal mysteries out there, and it seems to have progressively gone further and further down that, down that ranking over the years until, you know, recent times when it's, you know, sadly it's kind of become almost an afterthought in a lot of ways. And thankfully you're sort of bringing the interest back up into it. Yeah, well, let, let me tell you, uh, most of the leading spokesmen on the phenomenon are kind of don't actually believe there's anything strange in the lock at all. It's a, bit, it's a bit like going into a church and finding an atheist in the pulpit, if you know what I mean. So it's a... Uh, I, I, I can quite understand why that situation has arisen because we're in a kind of age of skepticism where people are more questioning. They, they want, they want uh, better proof. So, I mean, going back, going back to the 80s, uh, people began to kind of stand back a bit and take a closer look at the ecology of the loch, take a look at some of the pictures. Uh, a few body blows came along the way, like, you know, the surgeon's photograph was exposed as a hoax. Things like that chipped away at belief at uh, any kind of credence in Loch Ness Monster. So uh, that's kind of backdrop we're against today, really. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah, it seems, well, it's a, it's a truly unique uh, mystery in the world of the paranormal too in the sense that like with Bigfoot you kind of have to go and look for Bigfoot with UFOs you know they come to you they're not you can't really go somewhere to find UFOs but with Loch Ness it's it's there and you just you know you have to go there to find the mystery in a sense it's very different in a lot of ways from some of the other big stories in the paranormal well Loch Ness 24 miles long a mile wide and about 750 foot deep it is uh, the, the, the newest, the lowest uh, depth known so far. Trouble is, you see it yourself. That's a pretty small area compared to searching California for Bigfoot. And it's very small compared to the, the skies that the UFOs might uh, you know, move about in. The Loch Ness is largely unexplored, in my opinion, because uh, you basically jump into that loch and you'll find out that you're in a world of darkness after a few feet. Now, I liken it to, now people will say, well, Loch Ness, pretty small, surely you'll find something. Bigfoot, you've got the entire forest of California or whatever else that you think they might be walking about. But to tell you the truth, Loch Ness 
is what we call peat-stained water. You get all these rivers washing in various uh, matter into it, and it suspends in the loch. And you dive in, and it's, it's pitch dark after 10 feet. I, I kind of liken it to trying to find Bigfoot at the dead of night in a thick fog. Yeah, yeah. You can't do it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's the, it's the same problem with Loch Ness. Uh, you can only really penetrate it with sonar, and even then, you've got your limitations there. So it's, I would still class it as a largely unexplored area. Interesting, interesting, yeah. Now, I guess... It seems ridiculous because this is such a iconic case, but, you know, I kind of liken this program to sort of like the the show of record, if you will. So I guess give us sort of like a thumbnail of the Loch Ness Monster's story. When did this come about? I know that your book, The Water Horses of Loch Ness, talks a lot about, you know, the pre-sort of uh, boom in Loch Ness interest and how this goes back much further with folklore stories and stuff like that. But I guess sort of give us sort of a thumbnail look on what is the Loch Ness Monster for people who are just discovering this program or maybe are listening to this 100 years in the future and wondering what exactly we're talking about. Sure, I'd be glad to. Yeah, well, Loch, the Loch Ness Monster, has, it basically hit the headlines in 1933. Now, during that time, it was a pretty unsettled time for the world. We are going through a Great Depression. There was uh, you know, wars where... Uh, in the often, and into this comes this this story. Uh, about May 1933, uh, a, couple, a story was run in the local newspaper called Inverness Courier, talking about a strange spectacle at Loch Ness, and it was related to the story how uh, a couple, the Mackays, had uh, seen a couple of humps and some kind of disturbance in the loch. Now. Unusual story, and in fact, a similar story had run three years before 1930, but no one really picked up on it. So that kind of ran locally. It didn't. It didn't really gather much momentum, though. It kind of started, you know, an interest locally, and we had a few more uh, stories running, but it wasn't big news at that point. But what really took it off was what we call the Spicers, a couple from London who in uh, August of 1933 were on a tour, a tour of Scotland. And they, they knew nothing about this, this uh, new, new story. Yeah. And they, they basically were heading back down south. They were uh, passing on the, the quieter side of the loch, uh, around the area we call uh, Doors Foyers, which are two villages. And later they were to see in a... The letter that sparked this all off. You know, we saw this thing, we saw something that we could, it was the closest thing we could describe to a prehistoric monster crossing the road in front of them. So this thing was not in the water, it was out of the water crossing the road in front of them, about 200 yards in front of them. So they described it in those terms, uh, some kind of 15 to 20 foot object jerking across the road, a writhing neck, in sight for just seconds, disappeared. Time they got to the clearing in the bracken, it was gone. So this this was published locally, and it, the, the national newspapers and the international newspapers got a hold of this, and the thing just exploded. So it made the London newspapers, 
the US and so on, and from there on they just took off. So we have basically 1933, 1934, people were flocking to the loch, trying to get a picture of this thing, trying to get the latest stories, because it was, it was basically a good, it was a good, uh, it was a good type up for the newspapers. Yeah, yeah, it became like an international it, sensation. Yeah, it was, it was, um, there was a lot of bad news about it, and this, whatever, even whether you believe in the monster or not, it, it made for good news. And this continues into the 1934. 1934 was a kind of blow-off year in terms of fever. And then things quieted down. We, we went into World War II. So the ports tapered off. And you would have thought at that point that that was the end of the story. It was just a, a seasonal thing. We'd hear no more about it. But they were wrong because back it comes in the 1950s. The sightings keep coming. And a local woman called Constance White collected all these reports and published a book called uh, More Than a Legend. And this uh, re rekindled interest. And from that book, uh, someone called Tim Dinsdale uh, caught the spark. He headed up north in 1960. And he caught uh, what many believe was the hump of the monster crossing the loch in 1960 on cinefilm. So again, the thing bursts wide open again worldwide. He gets prime time television. The thing just sweeps across the world again. The Loch Ness Monster is, is, is on a revival. And a lot of things sprung from that film. You had lots of expeditions heading north to Scotland. You had an organization called the Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau being formed. It's run for 10 years looking for evidence. You had... Uh, Robert Rines and his sonar expeditions from America and the Academy of Applied Sciences heading over in the 70s. So again, we're kind of moving up to a peak of activity in the 70s. We are the underwater photographs and, you know, things really, again, uh, and I must point out again, this is during another recession. Surprisingly, this is the oil shock. The oil, oil shock. Stagflation in the 70s. Once again, we had a good story running here. Whether they believe it or not, that's just the way it happens. And then it tails off. We get into the 1980s. Things get a bit more sceptical. A lot of uh, monster hunters become disaffected because they really thought they would have proven it by now. So some of them begin to write books against the monster. Some of them take a more, look for more naturalistic explanations. And things have kind of been quiet now for the last 20-odd years. Springs up to today, the monster continues to be seen. I mean, my blog documents uh, stories people tell me or I'll pick up on newspapers as well. So as far as I'm concerned, the beast is still very much alive today after 1,500 years going back to the first ever story with St. Columba and his water monster in the River Ness. Hmm. So this thing, as you, yeah, you kind of just touched on it there. This thing, it, it exploded into the public consciousness in a sense in 1933 and beyond, but this thing's, the history of this actually goes back much further, back to 1500, as you say. So that's pretty remarkable. So it has quite a history that maybe people aren't aware of, right? Yeah, it, it tends to get dismissed, I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot of Loch Ness researchers are kind of more focused on what people were seeing at that time. 
modern teams because the, the Highlands were, had their folklore. They had their traditions of water horses, kelpies, and water bulls, all these kind of aquatic, mythical beasts. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, some would argue are just kind of the ancient equivalent of modern cryptids. Uh, so these, these animals, or so-called animals, were kind of supernatural. They could speak, they could change shape, and they were basically man-eaters, a lot of them. Hmm. So, uh, now, some would argue that, obviously, uh, these are stories to keep children away from the waters, so they don't drown or things like that. Fair enough, there's that aspect. But uh, my, my take the view that there's a, there's, there's a grain of truth in these you know, overtly and barely stories. Uh, the, t- the typical story is the horse is grazing by the wayside, beautifully adorned, bridled, waiting for a rider. The the tire, the wayfarer comes along, sees an opportunity for rest, saddles himself on this horse, thinks he's ready to go home, but suddenly he realizes he's on a kelpie and he sticks, he can't he can't get off the horse. He's like Velcro, super glued to this horse. The horse reveals his true identity and and gallops off into the lock and plunges in to feast upon his victim. Now, uh, that kind of story is all across the Highlands. So some people would argue that, uh, well, every lock has a lake, mo- uh, has a water horse tradition, so it's natural that Loch Ness should have one. And uh, that is indeed the case. Uh, but my, my studies uh, show that, uh, actually Loch Ness is the most mentioned loch in the literature of the time for having the reputation of having a a Kelpie in it. Huh. Others have it too, but Loch Ness stands out more than any other one. Which I take to mean that there really there's a grain of truth. There's something there. Right. Which was which was propelling these stories. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes sense. If it keeps coming up in that now forgive me because I'm completely really unfamiliar with sort of the topography and geography of Scotland. Is 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 Loch Ness sort of like the biggest of the lakes in Scotland, or is it sort of, uh, you know, in the middle, or is it, you know, one of the smaller ones? Where does it sort of rank amongst the bodies of water over there? Yeah, Loch Ness is the biggest body of fresh water in the whole of Britain. Oh, wow. There's nothing bigger in England, nothing bigger in Wales, Ireland, or Scotland. It's just huge. Yeah, I, I can't remember off my top of my head, but it might be eight... Eight hundred million cubic meters of water, and, and they, they bring it. There's a statistic that's often drops out here. I haven't actually verified it. They said you can fit the entire population of the world into Loch Ness more than once, and there'll still be room for maneuver. Huh. But it's just, it's just huge. I mean, twenty-six miles. If I was walking, it'd take me the whole of daylight to walk the length of Loch. Yeah, well, it's a marathon, right? Practically a marathon. Yeah, 26 mile marathon. Uh, I don't think I could do it in two hours, but uh, <laughs> I'm just saying uh, it's huge. It's the biggest loch in Scotland. It's not the deepest, only Loch Morar is deeper. But Loch Ness has the greatest average depth. So it's just the biggest thing in Britain. Okay. Okay. Now and it's up there oh. with the rest of Europe. 
Now, you talked about, uh, you mentioned the surgeon's photo earlier, and I'm sure that's the one that, you know, pops into the mind of anyone when they hear about Loch Ness. It's sort of like the iconic photo of the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, sort of like the, I guess you could liken it to the Patterson film of of the Loch Ness Monster in the sense that it's like the the first thing that people think about is that is that picture. So what what's your analysis, I guess you could say, what's your take on that photo? Because it's been debated to death, and, and, you know, I have no idea really the 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 links of uh how much this has been examined and stuff so enlighten me as to how much credence people should be putting into that photo uh probably not much but uh <laughs> <laughs> okay i i see that with reservations the the, the photograph was taken in april 1934 uh, repeatedly by a, a harley street gynecologist i think it was or some kind of doctor called kenneth wilson and he actually took two photographs. One is a classic swan, swan-like pose. And the second photograph, which wasn't published till over 20 years later, shows, shows this kind of head submerging under the water again. Uh, so that kind of stayed the iconic picture. And in some sense, it's still the iconic picture. Yeah, I've got it on my blog, a kind of representation of it. And... It stayed that way. It's inspired many to compel them in the search, as it were, uh, until we got to the 1990s there, uh, where two two guys, uh, Alistair Boyd, David Martin, wrote this expose. Now, uh, they, they, they'd basically be given a lead by another Loch Ness expert called Adrian Shine, who found a clitten in which somebody made some kind of confession. The thing was just a staged up, a fake. So they, they, they followed the money, as it were, and they, they found this guy called Christian Spurlin, who by then was, uh, very old, and he confessed that they'd, they'd set up the hoax for revenge. Now, by revenge, I mean back in the 1930s, as I said, when this was big news, uh, a chap called Marmaduke Weatherell, was employed by the London paper, the Daily Mail, as a big game hunter to go up to Loch Ness and find out what was going on. So he went up to Loch Ness with his team, and one of the first things they found was it's, they claimed they found footprints on the shoreline. Hmm. And it actually turned out that they were, they were staged. Uh, the, the, ex, the zoological experts looked at these spoors and said, this, this looks like a hippopotamus. How can you have a hippopotamus at Loch Ness? So, the thing, the thing was found out, people debated at the time whether, whether it had anything to do with this. But it turns out later on that he did plant, plant the spoors, the, the fake, the, the, the fake footprints because one of his descendants produced this, uh, hippopotamus ash tree for uh, the writers of the expose book. So he was sent home packing, tail between his legs, and he, according to Christian Spurlin, our old man in the 90s, vowed revenge on the Daily Mail. And so he, he surreptitiously staged this fake photograph and sold it through a, a go-between, Kenneth Wilson, to sell it to the Mail. So they took it, and it was published, and it was a sensation. 
the, the problem with all this story is that Marmaduke Witherall, the next part of the plot was he was going to expose the Daily Mail, saying the photos are fake to the to their worldwide embarrassment. Yeah. That, that never happened. So to this this day, we can't quite figure out why the plot line never quite followed through to the Marmaduke Witherall getting his revenge. So there's a kind of few loose kind of few loose strings to this story. It's pretty airtight. Interesting. But, you okay. know, there's unanswered questions, but by and large, people accept that it was a fake. Wow. See, I up until I was reading your blog earlier today and, and talking to you now, I had always sort of believed that that picture was legit, so I'm stunned to find out that, you know, you do a Google search for Loch Ness Monster on the images, and that's the only one that comes up, like, over and over and over again. It's amazing that, that we're dealing with something that still, it still resonates. And yeah, and, and yet, this, uh, as you say, it's a pretty like airtight you, case. <laughs> there's a few things I'd like to follow up there, because yeah. uh, no, nobody can quite explain the second photograph of this uh, head submerging. That, that's not in the story, that's not in the plot line, so that, that's an unanswered question. The other unanswered question is, like I said, why didn't Weatherill follow through on his revenge and expose the Daily Mail? And third, thirdly, I've got to say that uh, one of the authors, Alistair Boyd, was a firm believer in the Loch Ness Monster, because he had a sighting of a bat, big hump rising out of the water in the 70s in Northcote Bay and he tells us he could see the water running down his back it was that clear to him so he 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 believes there's a monster there but he's quite happy to write this book because he knew even though people would see this as a negative he still believed in the monster so there's, there's, there's positive and negative here and some, still some unanswered questions in my opinion Right. Okay. So, the, so it's yeah. it's it's a pretty airtight case, but the jury's still out, if you will, to mix metaphors. Yes. Yeah, some some small leaks, but uh, otherwise. Yeah. Uh, I presume then there's a, a litany of actually, well, maybe not a litany, but a handful of good photographs of the creature. What would you point people in the direction to if they were wanted to actually see what is, you know, maybe the most promising photo of the of the uh, of the cryptid? Yeah. Well, I'd say the first photograph is the best one. That's why I give it high prominence on my website. It was taken in 1933 by a Hugh Gray. Now, uh, he, he said he went for a walk after church on Sunday along the banks of the, the south side of Loch, and he, he saw this, he said he saw this thing rise out of the water about 200 yards away, and it was thrashing about in the water and spray was going everywhere. He had his camera, so he took some some uh, plates. Uh, only one came out, and that's called a Hugh Gray photograph. Now, when you look at it, it's kind of looks chaotic. Yeah. So you really got you really got to look at it a bit closer. Um, it's accepted as positive evidence. I think it's a I think it's a creature. Other authors throughout the years. Some people have argued they can see a, a Labrador dog in it. But I've, I've, I think I've proved to my satisfaction, hopefully others, that that's just a, an optical illusion. Because the whole, the whole dog face is not there. The brain's just filling in the gaps. 
Uh, the main thing is that you can actually see the head of the monster on the right-hand side. Now, I, I, I didn't even notice this till a few months ago, and no one had even mentioned it in any of the books. And I had to go through old newspaper archives back to 1933 to actually find someone that said, there's actually a head that looks like a seal uh, in this picture. Now, the reason no one had seen this head uh, gawping at them was because the official photographs in the newspaper had been over-contrasted. Uh, they were too contrasty and the feature was lost. But there was another better uh, contact print made from the negative called Heron Allen image, which gives you a clear view of what is actually being photographed. And if people go to my blog, I put it up at the front page, they'll see this kind of fish-like head, mouth open, BDI, looking at you. And that, that to me is one of the best proofs of the creature. We have other pictures. Uh, it's a picture by Adams that shows a kind of short-necked creature. Some people claim it's the fin of a fin of a dolphin, but I think I can prove otherwise. There's also uh, the Peter McNabb photograph. That's the famous photograph. You get two two humps going past the castle. That was taken in 1955. You get a Dinsdale film, which in my opinion is genuine. You have uh, other things too. And you, we're going right through up to the modern day. There's, there's been pictures published in the last 10 years which are even better, in my opinion, than these photographs. Uh, if people want to look them up, Roy Johnson and James Gray. That's Gray of an E. Now, people claim that these are fakes. I'm of, a, I'm of a different opinion. Yeah, it's interesting too. And the Loch Ness monster suffers also from the paradox of this sort of modern age, where you know, it's the, people always say, "Well, there's so many extra cameras now with the camera phones and everything," but at the same time, photographic evidence is is more is is more highly scrutinized now than ever because of Photoshop and everything else. So it's it's such a difficult uh, sort of problem to address in a way you know we should have a lot more photos maybe we do but then it's like people are inherently skeptical of photos in, in modern times sad but confusing too yeah we kind of have an evidence impasse here yeah yeah uh, where, where photoshop is, has arrived computer graphics now and you're being asked yourself how will people be convinced now the problem with Loch Ness is Sure, a lot of people go through it, uh, but the locks are mile wide. So if something pops up the centre lock, it's about 800 yards away. And most people go around with their three or four megapixel cameras. Uh, I tell you the truth, these things are just not good enough to get to get the detail, to get to get the definitive proof. Yeah. And you get the webcams as well, which are trained in Loch Ness, and you're really not going to get anything better than a blob. So uh, it's a bit like uh, the monster has to come to you, basically. You can't go to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So at the end of the day, it's really no different than any of these other mysteries, in a sense. It's, it's we all were dependent on the whim of the of the creature. Yeah, and luck. Uh, and luck. Yeah, it depends on the nature of the beast. 
Well, that kind of that, that's a good segue, I guess, to you know, to the question of of the of what is the nature of the beast. I mean, there it seems like there are so many theories on the Loch Ness monster. Um, you know, and you have a whole section on the website, you know, dedicated to what is the Loch Ness monster. It's it's sort of like the ultimate mystery behind all this. Have you personally sort of come to a an opinion or a favored theory, if you will, on, on what is uh, lurking there in the lock. Yeah, that's a good question there. Yeah. I've gone through various phases. Uh, like I said, going back to a kid, I was uh, pretty much in the plesiosaur camp. Uh, moved on a bit. I went through a paranormal phase. Because I, 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 in general, do believe in the paranormal, supernatural. Mm-hmm. Though I wouldn't uh, insist that that must be the explanation for everything strange. So I went through that stage that this thing is paranormal and then I kind of I stood back again a few years back and said, let's try and just kind of find a, a biological explanation for this thing. So, I mean, the, sta- the standard explanations, you know, you've got mammals, reptiles, amphibians, invertebrates, fish. Uh, really, I think it's going to be one of those guys. The ma- mammals, uh, we, we can kind of, in my opinion anyway, discount. The, the, we kind of have the long long neck seal or pinniped theory, which has been favoured by a lot, a lot of researchers. Uh, we can go back to cryptozo- cryptozoologists of decades past who've kind of taken the view that it's just a gigantic seal. It's got a long neck. But I, I kind of agree with people that say, well, if it was a mammal, we'd be surely be seeing a lot more of it. Right, because so we'd be coming up for air. Yeah, I mean, animals like mammals have to come up for air. Now, they don't need to show a lot to take in, a, take in some air through the nostrils. You know, Evolution would dictate that you conserve your energy and you'd, animals tend not to poke their heads out much. But yeah, you, you should, you should see, it should expose itself a bit more. <clears throat> and animals, mammals rather, mammals like to come on shore, they like to bask. I'm not saying that, that that's mandatory for this creature, but they tend to do that. And we know the Loch Ness monster does come on and come on land. But, you know, it's a pretty rare event when it does. And I think it's a nocturnal creature anyway. So, uh, which is why we don't see much of it. So I kind of discount mammals. Uh, reptiles, amphibians, I'm more open to. Uh, the people say that reptiles, amphibians, couldn't survive in Loch Ness because of the temperature. Uh, the the, the Loch Ness is pretty unique. It maintains a constant temperature about five or six degrees Fahrenheit throughout the year. That's why it never freezes over. So, pretty cold. And as we know, reptiles, amphibians, are what you call ectothermic, I think, they're cold-blooded. Yeah. So they're kind of reliant on their environment for their heat. And... Uh, you know, people, people have dismissed the reptile amphibian theory on those grounds. It's too cold. 
my my take on this is I like to I like to just question everything people say. Yeah. Not not because I'm a not because I'm a cynic, but because I, I just like to say, well, let's see how far we can take this. So, um, well, my my basic question to reply to that is, well, how how do the other reptiles in Scotland survive? How do the how do the snakes in Scotland survive? How how do the frogs and the newts and other amphibians survive in cold cold wintry Scotland? The answer is they find a way. You know we we have this wonderful diversity of life. Life always seems to find a way. Uh, but critics will say, but not in the case of Loch Ness monster. <laughs> so we we kind of have this scenario where. I call it the I call it the straw plesiosaur. You may have this kind of straw man argument that says, "Okay, look, you've got this dinosaur thing. That couldn't possibly be it. There's not enough food. It's too cold. So on and so forth. So they 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 get rid of the straw man, and people say, "Well, that's it. Then it can't possibly exist." But I, I see otherwise. I mean, I think. Uh, this thing could be a reptile or an amphibian. But I think, you know, the lock is cold, but animals survive. You know, how, I've, in my back garden here, when I go gardening sometimes, sometimes it says, when, <laughs> I have, when I have to do gardening, I'll dig about and I'll find frogs underneath, under the ground. I find lizards under the ground. Because these guys are hibernating, and they they escape the cold by burrowing underground, and they try to get below the frost level. So th- these are reptiles; these are cold-blooded animals finding a way, and uh, <clears throat> they survive the winter in Scotland. That's why we have reptiles and amphibians and other cold-blooded creatures. The Loch Ness monster, I think, is more, it could be an amphibian. Because I, I think this this creature may, mainly lives underwater. It, it, it's a water breather and an air breather. May, maybe like a lungfish. Okay. Maybe something like that. Something that can quite a home in the water. But whatever compels it to come out of the water, it has the capacity to either breathe through its skin or it has rudimentary lungs, or it carries a water supply. It, it just it just does this. Uh, you, you basically got to look at the sighting reports, and you've got to kind of piece a kind of mosaic together. And people have come up with this kind of flippers, long neck, long tail, couple of humps, and a, a thick body. Looks pretty plesiosaur-like, I must admit. Uh, but there's other features to this creature, which I think class it separate to anything we really know about. Uh, for example, where uh, people talk about, they see the humps changing shape. So they, they report this creature, they see it, it's, it's long head and neck sticking out the water, it has two or three humps. And they look again, it's only one hump. Or they look again, it's only two humps. So uh, people, people have speculated that the, the monster has some kind of buoyancy mechanism on its back, or is evidenced on its back, uh, which is buoyancy, because when the creature rises out of the water, it, 
it's actually quite buoyant. It exposes a lot of itself out of the water. And if you have these humps which are taking on creating positive buoyancy, for whatever reason, I don't know, it just rises at the water, it rises vertically, it sinks vertically. It's a really strange behaviour it's exhibiting. Okay. I think this creature is something unknown to science. We so a previously yep. so like like a previously undiscovered amphibian. Yeah. Now if we go back to seventies, uh, one of the leading cryptozoologists was Roy Mackle. Now, Roy Mackle was a biologist at I believe the University of Chicago. So he was a qualified scientist and he took an interest in Loch Ness Monster. He later went on to Africa to look for another creature called the Mokeli Mbembe. Mm-hmm. And he, he wrote one of the seminal books on the monster called the Loch, the Monsters of Loch Ness. He did a matrix of properties and properties of a creature, you know, physiological, uh, morphological, and the candidate species. And he, he filled in all the boxes, and the creature that got the most ticks was an amphibian. Uh, a kind of modified amphibian that, you know, made to look like not less monster. But unknown to science. Hmm. So, uh, I'm kind of in line with Roy Michael. Certainly at this point of time, I mean, I could change my mind next week. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, well, I think we're talking about an amphibian. If you look at the land sightings, which is a very interesting subclass of Loch Ness Monster, the, the witnesses often describe webbed feet, not flippers. So I think we're talking here, if you're talking about webbed feet, you're maybe talking about an amphibian yeah. of some unknown classification. Interesting. Now, so land, land oh. sightings give you the full expose my opinion. Yeah, because then you get the full view of the of the creature. You get, you know, he's yeah. not, you know, there's not, nothing hiding beneath the surface. So, the one the one theory that I had heard quite a bit in recent years was the giant eel theory. So, it uh, sounds to me like you're not a big proponent of that one. So, I guess I, at least just dispel that one for me so I can and put that away uh, from my, my personal mental file, if you will. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the giant eel, people postulate something which is maybe an eel, now your, your common eel, anguilla, anguilla, the European eel, you, they can grow quite large, seven, six feet. Uh, more commonly, you get a few feet long and, you know, a couple inches thick. But the kind of eel we're talking about here, uh, we're talking maybe, maybe two foot thick and about 30 foot long. Now, nobody's ever seen any such animal. Now, because because it's an eel, then we're kind of more in the comfort zone of the credible. And actually, Roy Mackel in his The Matrix uh, classification I just talked about, the, the giant eel came in second. So he, he was certainly thought it was a possibility. So once again, we, we needed some modifications to make it Nessie-like. Yeah. So he he proposed a good runner would be the sick the sick bodied eel. So you'd have an eel which kind of had a 
thickened middle section and then you have a kind of dorsal fin which could, if it was flopping over in a certain way, would look like humped. Now, the, the problem with that theory is it doesn't really explain the thin, long neck scenario of what we see. And if we go back to land sightings, they, these, what is described by witnesses looks far from eel-like. Some people have described long, thin animals, but generally it's a bulky body, a thick tail, and a long neck. So unless this giant eel can puff itself up like a puffer fish, <laughs> eh, for whatever reason, eh, in other words, we're talking about a thick body that is mainly hollow, then we're not talking about a giant eel here at all, in my opinion. Interesting. We basically got to go with what the eyewitness sees. Right, exactly. You've got to avoid the sin of uh, modifying the data to fit the theory. Well, the problem today is people are more interested than they are in the data. And that, that can often lead, lead you astray. I, I mean, I'm quite prepared to you know, question eyewitness data if it does lead to a, a rational explanation. But I don't, I don't want to go down the path where people are saying, uh, for example, we, we must discount all land sightings if we want to propose that the animal is a giant sturgeon, for example. Yeah. Sturgeon don't go on land. So you're kind of sweeping away an entire subsection of raw data just to fit your theory into the, into the, fit the square peg into the circle hole. So you got to be careful of that. Yeah, absolutely. Now, how prominent are these land sightings? Because uh, I, I think I was only really familiar with that first one from the 1930s that you were talking about. I don't have it in front of me. The spices, I think, is with the, uh, the couple that you're talking about. How prominent, though, have these these land sightings been? They're pretty infrequent. Now, <laughs> now going, going back to... We go back to the folklore. The Kelpie was a, always appeared on land to its victims. Yeah, it was a, it was an in-water and it was an out-of-water... A creature. Now, whether there was a kernel of truth in there, people saw this thing on the land and they, you know, they embellished stories. Uh, there's a possibility, but uh, we have about maybe 35 stories related to this creature being seen on land. Wow, this that's is pretty over, good. But this is over the last uh, 140 years. The oldest account we have, apart from the folklore, is about the 1870s. In the 1870s, we have a story where uh, this governess and her kids were out for lunch, and they were up the top end of the lock, breathing, and suddenly see this huge grey thing lurching past them, uh, swinging its head from side to side, this tiny head, long neck, grey elephant-like skin, Waddling into the water, you know, you can kind of see that that changed the day for them. And the uh, <laughs> 1870s, and other people have been seeing things like that throughout the years. And actually, the last the last land sighting was in 2009. 
Oh wow! And somebody, somebody took a photograph. Uh, his name is Ian Monkton. If you want to check that out, he he was uh, heading back with his uh, his wife to be after a holiday in near Loch Ness. It was eleven o'clock at night. He said, and he stopped by the water. Uh, and he just heard this crashing noise down below. And uh, at that point, the locks were uh, high up. So he heard this crashing and splashing noise down below. And he, he, he looked down and he, he took a, a flash photograph with his mobile phone. And uh, what came out was this thing. It looked like a roast chicken, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, we only have a zoomed-in photograph. I've been trying to find the un- uncropped version of it. But he said it sounded like a car was being thrown into the loch. And, uh, okay. And we take this picture, and it shows something which is kind of brownish-looking, kind of smooth. It seems to have some kind of appendages to it, but it's kind of in semi-darkness. So once again... I can in, in blobland blob here. Uh, and uh, people at the time thought, the experts thought it was an otter or something like that. So, I mean, things are still seen. And I've I, I tried to contact Mr. Monkton. If he hears this message, please contact me. But uh, people are still seeing things. Land sightings still continue. Now, I think... Uh, there's a possible avenue of a research here. Now, because what is the definitive proof of this creature? Now, apart from uh, a carcass or a piece of DNA, yeah, I think you really got to grab this thing on, capture a photograph of it on the land. Yeah. Now, now since um, we have 33 sightings over 130 years, we'll talk about once every eight years or uh, Every few years, shall we say. Pretty infrequent. So you can't really just drive up to Loch Ness and expect to capture a view in your first sighting. And the other thing is, these creatures are nocturnal. Because I, I, did, a, I did a talk on land sightings to a local group uh, in January. Uh, and I covered, I looked at the data, and there was a, a proportionally higher view of land sightings at night time, which I thought was pretty creepy. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Makes you wonder what they're doing. You know, maybe that's when they go for fruit or something like that. Yeah, well, the reason they may come in land is what, what drives a creature? Reproduction, resources, safety, who knows? But uh, they tend to come out at night, which kind of... It didn't surprise us, therefore, that people had legends about dark supernatural creatures coming out to get you at night time. Yeah. And uh, uh, my, my view is if we, if we, if we, if we can place cameras, trap cameras or something at strategic points, we could get somewhere with this. You may have to wait a long time, but it's worth it. I mean, a typical story uh, from 1919, uh, uh, a Jock Forbes was coming back from market on his pony and trap with his dad. It was about 11 o'clock at night. I think it was February. It was dark. They were going along the road, you know, just thinking about getting to bed and having a good night's sleep. 
then suddenly the pony backs up. It refuses to go any further. And before they know it, they see this dark shape slithering across the road. And before long, they hear a splash in the lock. And uh, uh, Jock Forbes says his dad muttered something in Gaelic, moved on, and they never talked about it again. That's the kind of creature we're talking about. Yeah. It moves about in the dark. It's nocturnal. It lives. It lives in a. It lives in a twilight world of peat-stained water. Uh, it's just. I'm not, I'm not saying it's morbid. I'm not saying it's kind of devilish. I'm just saying it's a creature of the dark. It's creepy. Very creepy yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was there. Uh, I go to Loch Ness a few times a year. I'll be going up in a few weeks, actually. And uh, I went up to do some night, night, nighttime photography, infrared. Uh, and I went, I went to Doors Bay, which is at the top. And this is not a built-up area. There's no street lights. You get the odd car coming past you. You can see some lights in the distance, but basically there's no light. I went down to the bay, and I, I was kind of... Uh, looking around me, making sure there's nothing dark and massive near me. Because <laughs> <clears throat> you, you do get a creepy feeling if you're on a beach, on your own, and you believe there's a 30-foot creature somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> there's no record of Nessie ever killed anyone. So I felt fairly comfortable, but I was there was a heightened sense of adrenaline, you know? Yeah. Which is part of the chase. It's part of the adventure. That kind of gives you a, gives you a bit of a kick, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I take it you personally have never seen the creature at all. No, I, I mean I've seen things, but I, 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 I normally, I, I don't want to be a kind of person that believes everything is nasty. Yeah. And I, at the same time, I don't want to believe you know, if you're a skeptic that nothing could be nasty. I've seen things which I think just have normal, perfectly rational explanations. I've seen I've seen large concentric ripples appearing out of nowhere. I said, okay, probably just a fish. I've seen uh, fish leaping out of the water as if being chased by something, but nothing ever appeared. Because I was there, uh, I was sitting by the shore last year, camcorder in hand, and I just saw these fish about 30 feet ahead of me just starting to jump out of the water, you know, leaping out of the water, and I thought, something's chasing them. Yeah. I just kind of sat there, camcorder on pause, ready to record, waiting for something to come out of the water, and nothing came out of the water, and I kind of stood down again. <clears throat> I think in that case, it was probably just a larger fish, like a trout or a salmon, uh, chasing smaller, smaller fish. But you, you got you got to get a sense of the lock. You've got to get a feel for what goes on around it. Being to learn the things that can fool you, and be able to distinguish the the natural from what appears to be you know unnatural. Exactly. Yeah. Can't go out there like, as you said, applying everything to the Loch Ness monster. Ladies and gentlemen, our special guest speaker will provoke you. He will inspire you. He is Creed Bratton. To 
Two eyes, two ears, a chin, a mouth, ten fingers, two nipples, a butt, two kneecaps, a penis. I have just described to you the Loch Ness Monster. And the reward for its capture? All the riches in Scotland. So I have one question. Why are you here? You're listening to Banal of America Audio. I asked the three of you to be here because you are all deeply committed to charity work. My Mary J. Blige Foundation is celebrating its 10th year of searching for the Loch Ness Monster. You mentioned how it's just tremendously dark down there and that sonar is like one of the only real viable ways to explore the lock. I guess talk a little bit about, you know, this thing exploded on the on the scene in the 30s and there's been all kinds of attempts to unravel the mystery. And I know, as you said, sonar has been a big part of it over the years. So I guess like talk about what's been done at the lock to get to the bottom, no pun intended, of, of the monster mystery. Sure, uh... Well, back in the 30s, obviously this thing grabbed the headlines. Uh, the first guy up there was, well, we had the various correspondents, uh, one-man expeditions. Uh, Rupert T. Gould was the first one up there, really, of any uh, note. He went around on a motorbike collecting information and eyewitness testimonies. And he wrote the first serious book on the monster in 1934. Uh, around that time, uh, Sir Edward Mountain uh, mounted his own surface watch expedition. He basically employed uh, some people to watch the lock. He gave them cameras uh, ready to photograph anything that came to the surface. Unfortunately, he he said he'd pay anyone that produced a photograph. So people were <laughs> people were cynically suggesting that you know when you offer that kind of incentive to unemployed people, then pretty soon you're going to get some photographs. <laughs> so, uh, uh, one or two photographs came out of that. There's an interesting photograph of a dark shape with a kind of spray of water being thrown up from the lock. But it's, it's inconclusive. Uh, surface watch, like I said, is a kind of mixed blessing. Uh, it's easy to do. You just sit there. But if the thing appears a mile away, then you, you ain't going to get anything conclusive. Yeah. And the further the further away it is, the more easy it is to be confused, confused with other normal objects. So that came and went. We had a pretty long lull in uh, the forties, fifties. The Dinsdale film came along, and then we had the Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau formed in nineteen sixty-two, I think. They ran for ten years. They set up watch watch stations around the loch with long-range telephoto lenses. They also had uh, mobile platform uh, cameras on top of vans, kind of uh, rapid response units, if you want to call it that, Yeah. to be deployed at a moment, you know, within the day, anywhere around the loch. They, once again, they got they got stuff, they got films, they got pictures, but more often than not, they were too far away. Uh, the only purported film of the monster on land uh, the previous one I mentioned was a photograph, of an actual cine film was taken two miles away, uh, people claimed they saw this uh, thing with a long neck pull itself out of the water two miles away on the, the opposite side of the loch uh, but once again it was just too far away even a long range telephoto lens has its limitations uh, heat haze other things just getting away 
So surface watching is proven to be a bit of a problem in, te- in, te- in terms of getting definitive proof that is. Right. You really needed something to pop up in front of you about 100, 200 years away. Uh, so the, things moved on from there. By the time we get to the 60s, uh, so, so portable sonar equipment and other things are being deployed. And people are beginning to say, well, if it's not going to come to us, we can kind of go to it by using the uh, you know, echo sounders. So uh, basically our boats of various you know, side scan sonar, you have a, you could either have a fixed point moored moor on the shoreline, or you could have the sonar on a boat scanning the lock while it moves up and down. And um, people began to get strange readings. Uh, they, they, they see things, they, they see the fish, they see other, they see the sides of the lock, but they'd also see these anomalous signals. And uh, people, people, Obviously, it said, well, this, this, is, this appears to be proof of a large object in the loch. And uh, people argued about this because <clears throat> sonar is a bit of a blunt instrument because it's not like the human eye where you can easily, easily resolve objects in right. front of you. It's basically you send out a blast of sound and it reflects back off something and trace pattern on your paper or your computer screen which you have to interpret. So, so every sonar image requires interpretation. It's, it's not like a, a light optical image. So people were getting these strange returns on the echoes and the debate began. You know, some people said, well, this looks like a large object. Others argued, well, it could be an effect of refraction or reflection off the side walls of the lock. It could be this, it could be that. So even even with that kind of tool, uh, alongside cine film and photographs, you had a bipartisan approach being taken up. And then you move on. Uh, sonar uh, has got better. Sonar's becoming more higher resolution, and you know they can begin to um, resolve to centimeters now. Oh wow! But you know, the monster has to be there in front of you to be seen. Right, right. You can start on one end, and it can evade you. Right. It's this, the sonar equipment is not like so advanced that we can have one enormous continuous sonar picture of the lock and see what's going on at all times, right? You can only, it's kind of like a telescope in a way. You know, you may be looking up in the sky in one direction, the UFO could be, you know, yeah. 30 feet to the, to the right and you're not going to get it. Yeah, because they had, in 1987 they had something called Operation Deep Scan and the, even that didn't cover the whole lock. And, and the creature, which didn't really appear to be something that lives in open water, because, well, there's not a lot to do in open water. Most of the food's on the sides and the shoreline, where the salmon are, the eels are on the trout. But uh, you could go up and down that lock, and you'd never see it. And basically, uh, I spoke to someone at Kongsberg, which are sonar manufacturers. They'd gone to the lock in 2003 with the 
British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC. The BBC had loudly proclaimed, we scanned the lock, we found nothing, it doesn't exist. And uh, but I spoke to uh, one of the guys there and he said, well, we, we actually only did bits at a time. <laughs> you know, you can't scan something that big in one go. So they were basically going along the side, mapping the contours. And uh, he said, well, yeah, he admitted that, you know, it could have been someone else. So, uh, and if the creature had been, I think the creature's a side dweller. Uh, we call, I call it a ben, a ben stick dweller. It just kind of stays on the side, being opportunistic, an opportunistic predator. And I think uh, you go over it, you never notice it. And the sediment, the sediment in the loch is quite thick. And the bottom of the loch is basically silt. And if you're a, if you were seriously walking along along the bottom of the loch, you could have disappeared down down some silt. Oh God! It's quite it's easy to hide in Loch Ness if you're a creature. It's dark, silty. So with that, with that in mind, you know, sonar continues to be a viable tool. But then, then in the 1970s, along came Robert Rains and the Academy of Applied Sciences. Now, they, they turned up in the early 70s with their sonar, yes, but also the underwater photography equipment. So they, they, they had various experiments going through the first half of the 70s where they would uh, have a sonar equipment uh, pinging and pinging off sound waves in front of them. And at the same time, they'd have strobe cameras. So basically, the strobe camera would just flash to a picture, you know, flash to a picture. And uh, sometimes the flash would go off in synchronization with the sonar hit, or it'd just go off at regular intervals. They had various experimental setups. Yeah. And uh, from, from that, they got some uh, what, these classic flipper picture, the classic head, gargoyle head picture. Now, these are controversial. <laughs> I can imagine, but, yeah. It seems like all these... It, it, it seems like the creature's fraught with controversy in a lot of ways. It's uh, it's it's such a mystery. Yeah, it's the, the gargoyle head. When I, when I saw that picture when I was a kid, I said, well, according to the eyewitnesses, the Nessie has a small head on a long neck. So I was a bit sceptical about that. There was another kind of body and long neck photograph as well, which you know people are divided over. The flipper photograph, some people say it's been doctored. Some people say, yeah, but the original photograph still shows something. The controversy continues to this day. The bottom line is we still haven't managed to convince any zoologist in any, any museum or any laboratory that there's something there. It's basically down like Bigfoot, like UFOs. It's down to a hardcore of dedicated believers, hunters, uh, adventurers, if you like. So we've had underwater photography, we've had sonar, surface photography, and so far we haven't got the evidence which convince the, the most hardened skeptic. Yeah. Now, uh, the, there are 
other avenues of research, and I'm looking into it as well. Obviously, money is a an issue because it costs money to use the latest technology and such like. But I, I, I think it needs to be a fresh approach here. A bit of la lateral thinking is required. Well, that's an interesting. That's a that's a, a sort of great point, I guess. And, and I was going to ask you. You know, I've posed this question to other monster hunters, if you will, people interested in the Bigfoot and other creatures and stuff. If let's say you know, Roland, like I hit the lottery tomorrow and money was no object, and I called you up and I said, you know, what what can we do here to to really go after this thing? What would you you know What would you propose? I guess you could say. What would be be your proposal to the best way to sort of uh, Cultivate the most evidence, if you will. If you really want a definitive answer, you'd read in a lock. <laughs> <laughs> I think there'd be a lot, a lot of objections to that plan. Yeah. And I, I believe me, I would not know where to put the water. So, uh, and even then, you know, you'd be wading through 20 feet of mud to find something. So, uh, no. I had a couple of ideas, but some, some of them were a bit tough tongue-in-cheek, uh, uh, divers, now, a lot of people have dived in Loch Ness, uh, I've heard a few interesting stories about people uh, seeing strange things uh, and the, looming at them in the distance, uh, people can check my story about Robert Badger, uh, he he was helping out with some equipment, uh, mooring equipment at uh, Urquhart Bay, uh, he finished the job, he went, he went for a swim. And he went out about 100 yards, and he says that as he was swimming, he saw this cylindrical object approaching him that was at six foot thick, and uh, it went past him. And at that point, he figured, I shouldn't be here. here uh, is Nessie a predator? I don't want to find out. And he, he basically, he, he, he swam as fast as he could in world record time, and basically his aqua, aqua planing on, on the ground by the time he got out. And, uh, I actually, I actually talked, talked to him by email a few months ago, and it was still fresh in his mind, and he still sticks to his story. So I was thinking, uh, tongue in cheek here, uh, get some divers out, and get them patrolling the locks. <laughs> with their cameras. You know, you know the Jacques Cousteau documentaries where you've got these uh, frogmen with cameras, yeah, you know, behind grips. Now, okay, I wouldn't do this. <laughs> that, I believe there's a forty foot, one or more forty foot creatures down there, and even though, like I said, there's no record of any violence, uh, yeah, I just pass actually. So I would, I, I would. Uh, pay these guys some danger money to go in there, scout about the loch, maybe 40 feet down <clears throat> under the surface, just gently swim about, see what happens. Uh, now, I don't think you get many volunteers. You might. But, uh, yeah, you and I would be back at the command center, right? Yeah, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be delegating. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the other thing is, uh, <clears throat> There's two other things here. Uh, trap cameras. Now, we know these things are, are much loved of Bigfoot hunters. Mm -hmm. You just strap it to a tree, you walk away. And that's, I think they're great, actually, because 
because I think this is something that is useful. Loch Ness is not, there's not Oregon or California to say it. It's, the perimeter of Loch Ness is about 50 miles. So you can't, you kind of got an enclosed area. Me personally, if I had a lot of money, I'd be strapping these cameras every mile along the loch and just trained on the shoreline to see what, just to see what happens. So uh, I, I would, I'd do that. I'd get some high quality rapid fire trap cameras, infrared, night detection, and just, just see what comes up after a year or so. Yeah, I've actually got a couple of cameras like that and I've been using them on the loch. I just point it at the loch and I go away for a few weeks. I come back, take the SD, the SD card out and I see what's on it. So far, no luck. But uh, it's pretty good to load this up into the PC. Uh, just, just the excitement of seeing what comes up and you'll see pictures of uh, canoeists going past looking at the camera. Uh, you'll see logs crashing in on a wave. And I, I must admit, I got one picture of one long-necked creature in one photograph. Huh. It was a bird. It was a bird. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a heron flapping its wings about 10 o'clock at night. I thought it was a great, it was a great picture. It showed it was. Uh, but it was, at, it was about dusk, so the infrared hadn't really kicked in properly. So, uh, no, this is just me. This is my own, my own foible, my own kind of eccentricities, but I, I kind of believe these creatures come out at night time to forage about. So I reckon <clears throat> you get a trap camera trained on the shoreline. Something moves, takes a picture every second. Yeah, you've got something there to show to the world. So there's also what I might call pinch points. Now, th this is where, as I said, it's a big lock, 24 miles by a mile wide. Uh, but I, I, there's a concept to me of pinch points, uh, places where you could kind of funnel the Loch Ness Monster. And I'm talking about basically rivers here. You have about seven, seven rivers that flow into Loch Ness. Okay. Okay, so you get salmon runs, things like that, things that can tempt a monster to kind of maybe pursue the quarry. Uh, we'll get plenty of sightings where these creatures are seen at the, the mouth of rivers. So if you kind of just stick a camera looking down one of the rivers that feeds into Loch Ness, you've kind of, if something's going to be there, it's obliged to squeeze into this river, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, and uh, you've got it capped in a sense because it, it's obliged to kind of stick to the waterway. Whereas if you get an entire lock, stuff could appear 100 yards away, you know, yeah, sorry, 500 yards away, forget it. If it's on, going along on the river pathway, then who knows? This is all speculation. I could try it, it could fall flat in its face. Yeah, it's the topic, guess what, here. But that's, that, these things go through my mind because, like I said, everything else is producing stuff, but it's either inconclusive or it's not good enough for the skeptics. Right, right. We're looking for the we're looking for the game changer, if you will. Now you 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 hit the magic word here on speculation. It's um it's interesting to think too because 
You know, you always hear, obviously, it's the Loch Ness Monster, but, you know, you pointed out earlier, these things, these sightings have gone back like 1,500 years. So it stands to reason that we're talking about several creatures here. There can't just be one that's lived 1,500 years or whatever. So what's your take on what the population of these things might be? I know it's almost impossible really to speculate on, but, I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? Are we dealing with, like, a couple dozen? Are we dealing with, like, 200? I mean, who knows? But that's what I'm asking you, I guess. Yeah, uh, there's possibly one creature if you go for some kind of paranormal explanation. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll just avoid that just now. <laughs> What I'm seeing is uh, some people have done studies. They try to estimate the fish stock. They come up with a tonnage. And they say, okay, if you get so many tons of food, you can only have so many tons of predator. Right. Sure. And various studies have been done. And once again, when the realms of speculation here, uh, I, 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 I emailed uh, one of the, the fishery trusts of the area and said, Guys, how, how many salmon, how many trout, how many char live in Loch Ness? And they said, we have no idea. Oh, wow. There's, there's no definitive number. Now, Adrian Shine, who runs, is the curator of the Loch Ness uh, Centre at Drumnadrocket, one of the museums there, uh, exhibition centres, sorry. Uh, he, he, he's a dab hand, as we say in Scotland, with a, a sonar. So he... he he did uh, sonar counts of open water fish, Arctic char mainly, top 40 meters of the water column. He came out of about uh, 20 tons of char, uh, which was largely in agreement with another uh, study done. Uh, but that didn't include, to his own admission, uh, the salmon runs, which are twice a year. Is you also have the sea trout, which run through Loch Ness. Uh, you have the eels, which uh, frequent the sides in the bottom of the loch. So it, we juggle some numbers here. Uh, you come up with uh, maybe, I'm trying to remember the numbers, but it was over 100 tons. Wow. Now, the question is, uh, it could be more. Because really we, we don't know how many fish we 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 have a we have a reasonable doubt that it's less than it used to be because of pollution overfishing, but it is varied. Uh, the, the question is, you, let's say you have 150 ton of fish. Uh, how how many how much predator biomass could that sustain? Now, that's really where we get into speculation because. Uh, what we call the prey-predator ratio depends on the predator. Right. Now, for example, mammals need to eat more to, because they generate their own body heat. So, for example, when Adrian Stein did his calculations, he suggested a ratio of 10 to 1. In other words, 10 ton of fish for 1 ton of predator. So using that ratio, you get about... 150 divided by 10, 15 ton of monster in the loch. Uh, but I said, hang on a minute. Uh, other studies of European temperate lakes on fish type animals were coming up ratios of 3 to 1. So you talked about 150 divided by 50 ton of Loch Ness monster. 
And then if you get to reptiles, cold-blooded animals, we know that crocodiles and such creatures, it's almost unity. You can have, you know, one ton of prey for one ton of predator. So you, you kind of, once again, it, the, the monster tonnage goes up depending on the type of animal you, you might speculate about. Yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, basically, I, I, I went for the, the middle ground, three to one ratio, 57 tons of monster. Now, how, how heavy is a Loch Ness monster, you might ask yourself. That's what I was just wondering. <laughs> I mean, that's easy questions like that. Yeah. Okay? Now, uh, uh, an African bull elephant weighs about two tons. Okay? How much is a Loch Ness monster? Uh, Loch Ness monsters, it's been famously said, well, maybe not famously, but when the Loch Ness monster is on land, it's the largest living land animal. <laughs> So, uh, okay, great. Now, when you see these 20, 30 foot bulky things jerking along the land, you're talking about three or four tons. Now, uh, elephant bull seals, which are another aquatic animal that comes on land, uh, they are, they can be two tons upwards, the big bulls. Uh, so, we're, we're in that kind of ballpark, a bit bigger. Uh, the, the, the caveat there is, uh, how much of that bulk is actually solid flesh? Because we're talking about this buoyancy thing and whether, you know, whether, how much of it is actually gas. Ah, yeah. To, to allow them to, uh, propel themselves. So, uh, this is all speculation. I mean, can, of course, absolutely. Yeah. We know that. Nobody can prove me wrong. Nobody can prove me right. But, uh, Except the monster itself, right? Yeah, that's a catch of one. But, uh, <laughs> So, four, we were talking about maybe three or four ton, a good size animal. Uh, so we divide three or four tons at 57, you get 17 animals. But if you talk about the bulls, you know, if you talk about different sizes of animals, female, male, juveniles, you could go down to one ton animals, you could have 10, 20 animals. It, it just depends on, uh, now what kind of tonnage you come up with or what kind of average weight you come up with. Right. So we're talking about somewhere in the range of like maybe 15 to 30. Is that? Yeah, that's like a ballpark. And the other, the other question is, you know, how do they, how would they breed? Now some people suggest they might be parthenogenic because some animals don't need a male to reproduce. There was a story in the, the, the papers, uh, the websites recently about angel sharks in an aquarium in Dubai. They're all females, yet they still produce young. And no male had touched them for years, if ever. And, you know, it seems that these, these sharks are just, can just parthenogenically reproduce. So, you know, we could speculate endlessly that, you know, that a smaller population could survive parthenogenically. But on the other hand, there's the other issue of um, genetic diversity, all that sort of thing. You know, how long do these creatures live? How often do they reproduce? It's you know, a lot of variables in this equation. Absolutely, yeah, because we're talking about a highly, it's a, it's a completely speculative creature. I mean, we really, we have to kind of just go on what we know about. You know, it's, it's almost like the old thing about 
the blind people touching the elephant. You know, we're not really we're we're sort of having to work with all these different aspects yeah, yeah. of the creature. It's very uh I can see why you know, despite the ebbs and flows in popularity that the, the Loch Ness monster still captivates because it is so perplexing. It touches something in the psyche. You know, we we love large creatures. You know, why are dinosaurs so popular? Because we find them scary. My man's impressed by things bigger than himself. And the Loch Ness Monster, you know, fits that genre. Now, I, was re- I was reading how Godzilla fans are big fans of Loch Ness Monster. You know, because these, these guys, you know, as the film goes, size matters. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, we just love big things. You know. We just, even if the evidence is thin or isn't thin, we just we just like to read about these things. Now that's why the Loch Ness monster will continue to captivate, continue to enthrall. There was a poll done recently that said that one quarter of the Scots still believe that there's something in Loch Ness, despite all the sceptical publications and uh, pronouncements in recent years. Mysteria. That raises an interesting point, and uh, you touch on it a few times over the course of the blog here, and that's sort of like, what's the mood like in Scotland now? I mean, I'm sure that they really, for lack of a better term, appreciated the monster when all these people were coming to see it, and you see, you know, try and see it, <laughs> and, and you you know, you presume, I, at least I do, that that it has to be beneficial for the area, that it's that has generated this sort of reputation as the home of this, you know, infamous creature. But it also seems like, you know, in modern times, maybe they're trying to move away from it. What's, you know, what's the state, I guess you could say, of, um, you know, Loch Ness as far as taking advantage of or exploiting or talking about the, you know, the famous creature that allegedly lives there? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a love-hate relationship. You know, can't live with it, can't live without it. I think it's a freeze up enough for this thing kind of thing. It's good for the tourist industry, no doubt about it. People go to Loch Ness. Now, they may not think there's something there, but, you know, something deep down is still keeping one eye on the loch, and, and something is still keeping one finger on the camera trigger. And uh, the tourist trade, you go up there, you see the fluffy Nessies, you see the Nessie burgers, all that sort of stuff. The books are still selling. It still interests people, and... People bring their kids. The kids love it. You know, as I said before, everyone below the age of 12 believes in a Loch Ness monster. So it's just, it's just, it's just there. The number of kids' books that's written on Nessie is more than the number of serious books that we call them. It's just, it's just a big cultural thing. Now, I mean, up there, I mean, the locals are probably a bit cynical of it. Yeah, so, some see it, but they don't really talk about it. Keisha looked upon as a bit of an idiot. Uh, the research continues, uh, but more in an ecological sense. As I said, the, lead, the leading spokesman on the, the phenomenon tend to be sceptical. So you still get photographs coming up. You still get sighting reports. And in fact, uh, well, William Hill, the bootmakers, used to run an annual competition for the best sighting. He got a thousand pound prize, about sixteen hundred dollars. And uh <clears throat> because we had actually had a, a fairly good number of sightings and photographs this year and one good sonar hit 
they they re-ran the competition and the guy got the sonar hit, Marcus Atkinson, if you want to Google him, uh, he won a thousand pounds. So that was a good day's work for him. And uh, there was also, you know, some photographs, one particularly good photograph in my opinion, and a sighting of a head and neck seen by two independent witnesses un- unknown to each other. The sightings still continue, and the local papers, they always pick up on it, because it's still good copy. You're still going to get news about Nessie. You're still going to get people coming up. You're still going to get people saying it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. You're going to get people like me saying it does exist. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a more sceptical regime, but I do more a little bit to try and uh, make people think again about what, what's under that water. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, there, it's still, you know, it still remains unresolved. And, uh, well, have you given much thought? I've kind of heard of the theory, I guess you could say, that, you know, that maybe the Loch Ness Monster, I guess, well, you're getting all these modern sightings, so I guess you sort of dispel the idea that the, that the monster's dead. I'm sure you've kind of heard that idea, that, that, you know, the monster was around for a while, but it's probably not there anymore, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Robert Reigns thought it was dead, but I don't know how serious he was about that. Uh, as I said, overfishing, pollution has reduced uh, food stocks. So, but the sightings still continue. Right. And, you know, people are saying, people speculate about whether Nessie has a, a way of getting out to the sea through underwater tunnels and that, and this is all speculation, of course, whether it makes its way down the, the, the great line out to the sea to fish and food out there is it doesn't seem to affect it maybe it's paranormal <laughs> so, uh, well you touched on that earlier and uh, we kind of pushed it to the side for the moment but talk a little bit about I guess about the about the theories that this thing is some kind of paranormal entity and not necessarily a natural uh, creature if you will sure that uh, there's actually quite a lot of advocates for that theory. I mean, I have dabbled with it. Uh, Ted, Ted Holliday was a, a well-known monster hunter, kind of broke, broke ranks with the plesiosaur or people. He thought it was a, uh, how can I put this? A kind of tulpa. Do you know what a tulpa is? A tulpa, yeah, like a, like a creature that's sort of uh, created by the mass consciousness uh, belief in it, if you will. Yeah. 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 He, he thought it was a kind of manifestation, a thought form materializing. He, he proposed a mechanism called L, L fields, which I'm actually not well up on. He wrote a book called The Goblin Universe, which he kind of laid out in a, a posthumous book about this. Uh, at the time, in the early 80s, I was I was kind of influenced by a guy called Tom Bearden, who uh, was going on about psychotronic warfare. And uh, he thought the Russians were about to launch a psychic attack on America. Didn't happen. But he <clears throat> he had this kind of theory that 14 paranormal phenomena were a manifestation, a psychic manifestation of the collective unconscious. Now that sounds, that sounds pretty complicated, but he thought that things like Loch Ness Monster, UFOs, maybe in Bigfoot, I don't know, but uh, archetypal manifestations of a collective unconscious. You know, he, he, he appealed to Carl Jung and his kind of archetype uh, 
Eerie's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe I don't know if he's in Planet Loch Ness with some kind of phallic symbolism. <laughs> but uh, or whether no, I don't know if he's going to say about the two humps. But uh, <laughs> it's just, uh, it's just, it's just. It kind of it resonated with me at the time. I thought these guys, it kind of holds together this thing. Uh, other other monster researchers, you've Tim Tim Dinsdale, most famous monster researcher. He believed in the paranormal in general. He he was a member of the the Ghost Society, and he he had a few paranormal tales to tell as well. He he didn't quite make the final step to see that Loch Ness monster was that kind of thing. Another chap who died a few years back, whose name completely escapes me. He he ran a kind of crypto museum in California. He died in 2007, I think, 2006. He thought that Bigfoot was a paranormal phenomenon, so were all the other cryptids. So, I mean, I've seen polls where maybe 10, 15 percent of people think this is a paranormal phenomenon. So there's a, a sizable proportion there of people who think, uh, for example, that there's energy fields that run through Loch Ness. Uh, once again, I'm, I'm kind of harking back to another guy I read in the 80s called Paul Devereaux. He, he wrote a book on airflights. He, he claimed that uh, piezoelectric effects on tectonic faults it produced kind of ball lightning or UFO-like effects. Uh, we also thought that it was possible these piezoelectric effects could impinge upon the brain to produce some kind of uh, psychedelic uh, hallucinatory effect. Uh, again, it's all speculation, but those are the kind of things that are being said when I was reading up in the 1980s about these things that, that there could be an insubstantial psychic, psychical <clears throat> uh, undertone to all this. Yeah. And, and it continues to this day. I mean, I regularly, I regularly talk with people over email about this thing and they're firmly convinced that it's a paranormal phenomenon. And, you know, I know where they're coming from. Right, right. Well, even, you know, it sort of is an easy explanation in a way because, uh, you know, you're sort of explaining the unknown with the unknown, so it's more, it's it's, it's it continues the elusive nature of the of the creature in a lot of ways too. It may create more answers and questions than answers. Absolutely, yeah. I guess we should address to the big dog of of Loch Ness monster theories, if you will, and that's the whole plesiosaur thing. Now we we've, we've we're talking about how you're right now thinking that it's some. Um, Previously undiscovered amphibian, so that sort of uh, goes against the plesiosaur idea. But I think a lot of people too, you know, we talk about the surgeon photo and how a lot of people, when they first hear Loch Ness monster, they think of the surgeon photo, and I think in turn also they think of the plesiosaur theory. It's almost like kind of how, you know, you talk to an average person on the street, you mention UFOs, and they immediately think of like gray aliens. It's kind of like become synonymous with this with this theory. So I guess talk a little bit about the plesiosaur theory and where you stand on that and whether you think it stacks up as a possibility, you know, in, in the grand range of uh, theories. Yeah, well, the, the plesiosaur theory is, you know, has almost been there from day one. Uh, I mentioned Rupert T. Gould. He, he wrote a book in June 1934. And we were kind of, that was, that was 
within months of the phenomenon breaking out into the news headlines. And he, he was talking about plesiosaurs, amongst other things. I mean, the, ple, the plesiosaur was a, a well-known candidate even back then. It just seemed to, morphologically, it seemed to fit the bill. Long neck, long tail, thick body, four flippers. And that, that, that theme continued through to the 50s. I mentioned Constant White and her More Than a Legend book. Please you saw I guess I mention again. Uh, 60s and so on. The, the thing is, uh, on the one hand, it's a good fit morphologically. Uh, but behaviorally, does it fit the bill? I mean, Nobody's, no, nobody can tell really from the fossil record much about the, the, the life, life site, you know, the behavior of a plesiosaur. You know, recently they've postulated in the, looking at the neck structure that it couldn't raise its head above the water, for example. So that, that kind of got the media's attention. They said, Loch Ness monster proven not to be plesiosaur. It's, uh, the plesiosaur seems to be more and more out of favour, unless you're under 12 years old, like I said. And uh, <laughs> but I would say, I would say, I would say something. At that point, the the previous fossils we have go back 70 million years or older. You know, I I would say a lot can happen to an animal in 70 million years. Right. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, no, I think you're right about that. <laughs> so I mean. One going to postulate the, the, the descendants of the plesiosaurs could look completely different to what we see in the fossil record. So again, again we're in the realm of speculation as to, you know, we're kind of comparing something that we only knew about 70 million years ago with something that we've seen a lot today. I mean, how on earth can we really make a, a complete judgment on this? I mean, look at how varied life can grow in even shorter time spans. It's just, it's possible, but you know, we, we could be talking about a plesiosaur, which is, you know, it's a plesiosaur, but not as we know it, <laughs> to, to quote Spock. Right. So it's, uh, it's just, it's possible, but 70 million years of evolution adapting could lead us to something which is, you could call plesiosaur, but it's, not really. You see what I mean? Right, right. Sort of like how they say, you know, the dinosaurs came from the birds, or the birds came from dinosaurs. I, I get it confused here. It's yeah, uh, you, know. Yeah. you know what I you mean? <laughs> it goes like that. So I mean, it, you so know, it could, it could be a plesiosaur, but not as we know it. Right, a descendant of the plesiosaur, or a mutated version of that, or you know, something that's evolved over the last thousands and years to to be what a long, long you know, right, I'd, right. I, I wouldn't even speculate because I'm, I'm no expert. So, but, I mean, the coelacanth, which was a famous case, it, it hasn't changed. It, it seems to, it appears to be unaltered since since its fossil record. So maybe it hasn't changed. Who can tell? But we can only speculate. Right, right, right. I, mean, I wouldn't totally discount it. Right, exactly. So now, what do is it is you say it kind of got skeptical over there in you know in the eighties and stuff skeptical in the sense that they thought people were being misinterpreting this or skeptical in the sense that 
it was just, like we had said earlier, like it was just an eel or it was just a sturgeon or something like that. Well, as I said, in the 80s we had uh, a few books come out. Uh, I, think, I think the problem was that with a lot of uh, Loch Ness Monster enthusiasts had spent a lot of time after the loch. They'd devoted time and resources. They were really sure it was going to be solved by all this effort. It wasn't. Some of them get disaffected. Some of them decided, actually, it's all just a dupe. And, you know, for example, we had a book in 1983 called The Loch Ness Mystery Solved by Ronald Binns. He, 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 he wasn't seeing anything new because there had been a book by Morris Burton in 1961 called The Elusive Monster, which basically took the same line that basically witnesses either deceived or the deceivers. You see the difference? So right. you're either a deceiver, your folks that you're lying about it, or you're deceived. You've, you've seen a natural object maybe in a, in a strange context. So, so for example, <clears throat> you might see a, a bird, a, a line of birds. A log. A log. So on, you, it might be a, an otter, it might be a deer swimming in the distance, or a seal, yeah, so on and so forth. So, and that, that's what people, well, to tell you the truth, the majority have always not believed in Loch Ness Monster. So, the, the skeptical theory has always been the majority theory in terms of population numbers. Right. So, so uh, <clears throat> that has come more into line. <clears throat> But I'm saying, I'm saying here, wait a minute. I look at some of the the, the, the witness data because that that to me is the raw data. Now, like like you say, it's either a real thing, you know, something unknown, or they're deceived or they're deceiving. The crit, this is where the so-called critical thinking has come into vogue. You know, people they, they apply logic, so-called, and they come to these conclusions that. They're just basically inexperienced observers. But I, I dispute that. I mean, that, that one of the one of the reasons my blog is to not just try and produce evidence for monster, but another of my I wouldn't call it a mission statement. One one of the legs of my my table, as it were, is to dismantle skeptical arguments. Right. So. Uh, there's various ways that can be done. Basically, they may propose the sighting was explained by this or that, and I'll, I'll basically try and prove them wrong, or prove that there's alternative explanations which are just as good. But I mean, for example, one sighting by Greta Finley. Now she she saw something in 1952 uh, with her son Harry. She says she was uh, a caravan on the shores of the loch. She heard some splashing noises. She went round the back of the caravan and she was shocked to see 20 yards away uh, this two-humped creature, a long neck, looking at her, and uh, 20 yards away. Now, the, the witness says it was two horn-like protuberances on its head, like a snail. You yeah. Know, it's two antennae things. Now, this is where skepticism uh, meets, you know, well, 
I'm not quite sure how to put it, but uh, <laughs> they, say, they say, okay, what she saw was a deer because it had two horns. What animals have two horns? Yeah. Deer, deer have two horns. Uh, deer can go into the water. Therefore, she saw a deer. Okay, I say to that, yeah, okay, guys. But she said it was 20 yards away. To which they retort the skeptic, well, she, she basically had a mental black, black, you know, blind spot here. She, she, she thought it was a monster, therefore it appeared to her as a monster. So we're beginning, we're beginning to get into strange psychological territory here, because I'm saying, how can you confuse a deer for a 20 foot monster at 20 yards away? Right. And, uh, you know, and the, the witness says it was grey coloured. It didn't have any facial features. It was just a kind of blob. Uh, and, it, and it swam off and submerged. So I'm saying, well, come on, guys. Uh, how, how could this witness possibly confuse a deer? I've seen deer. I've walked in forests. I've seen deer. And bingo, it's a deer. I mean, what's the problem here? Everyone knows what a deer looks like. Plus, if a deer if a deer popped up from the water, they can't stay underwater, and she certainly wouldn't. She didn't run away or anything when she saw this thing, right? I mean, she was watching, and it never came back up to the surface. So, you know, unless it was a drowning deer, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're saying this. I mean, one thing I always ask witnesses is, how did the sighting end? And if they see the thing submerged, it went back under the water, then. It's pretty, there's not a deer. Right. So, uh, so this is a problem. I mean, it's, it's, it's what I call, the, they might call it the lesser two evils. I mean, they will say these things. They will say it was actually a deer. She just got, she just got totally confused. And that's the end of it. So they're just saying, they'll admit that this, this is not a slam dunk theory. Uh, but what, what they're basically saying to the, the general audience is, my theory sucks less than yours. <laughs> you know, they'll say, look, Occam's razor, it's easier to believe my theory than your theory. It's easier to believe she, she confused a deer with a monster at 20 yards than it is to believe there's a big creature in Loch Ness. So th- this is, this is what you're up against. It's just, I say, come on guys, it's give these witnesses some, some slack. They're not idiots. In fact, I would I would say I would say in, in, in cases like that, I might just say they're lying. I mean, that, that, that's more credible. Why do you just say <laughs> the Why do you just say the fabricated whole thing instead of going for this this idea that they couldn't tell a deer from twenty yards? Just say they lied. The, the problem with that is that is not critical thinking. Right. It's just a safety net argument. You see, oh, they just lied. So where's the application of brain power there? It's just, it's just uh, simplistic reasoning. It's, it's just a uh, get-out clause, really. So you get these eyewitness testimonies. Uh, the skeptic comes to these stories and says, right, which animal best fits this sighting, no matter how ridiculous it may appear? Seal, otter, duck, deer or something else. So they just uh, 
they just pick something that close, closely fits, best fits, and they move on. Right. So what they're really relying on is misperception to me to the nth degree, really. And I do I, I don't accept that. I don't I don't think witnesses are so easily fooled, especially at such close distances. If it's five hundred yards away, we can talk about it. But hundred yards, fifty, twenty five? No. Yeah, I, I think if I was skeptical I'd have two two mantras. The, the further away it is, the more likely it is misidentification. The closer it is, the more likely it's a hoax. So that, that's that's where I think they're coming from. Right, right. But who can blame them? I mean, we get, we're, we're talking about people who, a lot of these skeptics or critical thinkers, as uh, they might want to be called, they've lived at lock for decades and they've never seen a thing. Now, you might, you might, after 30 years, begin to think there's nothing there. Right. When you hear about a tourist that goes up and sees it on a first visit, <laughs> that's pretty deflating. Yeah. It's better just to say they saw a deer and everyone's happy. Right, right. So, oh, like, if yeah. I went over there and saw it on my first visit, they wouldn't like me very much. <laughs> no, it'd be, it'd be like a lottery win. Exactly. But to be fair, you get million, you got a million people going to Loch Ness. If you, if the chance of seeing it a million to one, then somebody's going to see it. So. Exactly. Right. Right. Well, so somebody said that somebody calculated once that you get to watch a lock for three, four, five hundred hours and hope to have a chance of seeing anything. And who has that and kind of time? Quality, that's, that's quality observation, not just glancing at the lock. Right. Right. Or washing the dishes. So uh, yeah, the mood the mood currently is skeptical, but we have a kind of hardcore believers like myself who still fight in the corner. And is is there much of a community, I guess you could say, of of like you said, hardcore people like you who are who are sort of still trying to get to the bottom of this? Is it is there much of a vibrant community around there of of sort of uh you know Loch Ness enthusiasts, for lack of a better term? Well, up in Loch Ness, you've got uh, Steve Felsham. He's, he, he went up to Loch 20 years ago. He gave up his day job. He bought a mobile home, and he just lived at Loch. And he's still there after 20 years uh, wow. looking for the monster. He, I think, he said he had one sighting of it in 20 years. Uh, he's up at Dorothy at the north side. Uh, he still thinks there's something there, but he's, he's mellowed a bit, I think. Uh, at the Loch Ness Centre, you've got Adrian Shine, who's a curator. Uh, he's he's been involved in Loch Ness investigation for decades. He's a, he's skeptical, but he's an experienced guy. Uh, so you also have Dick Rayner, who has been involved for decades. He's he still runs experiments there. Once again, he doesn't think there's anything there, but he's he says he'd be delighted to be proven wrong. So uh, he 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 runs webcams, underwater stuff. Yeah, so things are still going on, but there's no there's no real organised effort like in the 60s and 70s. Uh, you might get the odd publicity stunts coming up, uh, coming up north with equipment. Yeah. But ultimately, you just get a kind of small groundswell of people like me who go up on their own. 
Uh, we're not as numerous as we used to be. Uh, back in the 70s, 80s, like I said, you'd probably have dozens of people heading up north. But to tell you the truth, I've no idea how many go up now. It's kind of, like I said, gone a bit quiet. Yeah. It's, yeah. Just, it's just waiting for the next bit of blockbuster evidence. Uh, to me, that means a land, land, clear land sighting picture or a very good cine film at 100 yards. That's the kind of thing it would, like the Dinsdale film back in 1960 would kickstart things again. Right, right. And it does seem like maybe the Loch Ness Monster is kind of due for a renaissance, especially in light of how you said that it's burst forward a couple times into the public consciousness during down economic times. Well, we're in a down economic time now. you am surprised we haven't seen sort of a resurgence of Loch Ness interest, although it is kind of starting. I'm hearing more about it in recent years, especially through your work. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because you had the 1930s and then the 1970s, two economically challenging times. Those are 40 years apart. Now, add 40 to 70s and you get the 2010s. Right. So we're now in a decade where you might think, oh, it would be nice if something happened again. We've been through the credit crunch. We've been through the dot-com bust. Kind of similar street in times. Uh, interest has gone up again. Maybe, maybe in these kind of times people look a bit more excitement, you know, something to distract them from their their uh, trials and tribulations. Uh, but like I said, it needs more than that. It needs it needs something, some new evidence, something to just catalyze. Right. Like the like the Dinsdale film, a new catalyst to to energize a new generation of uh, enthusiasts. Whether that will come or not, I don't know. That's down to people like me to either get lucky or some tourists to get lucky. Yeah. And then it starts again, basically. That's right. Well, hopefully we'll get that that catalyzing moment uh, this decade and, and really uh, have a, you know the next era of Loch Ness interest. So we can only hope, right? The, the creatures down there, more than one of them, so it's just a matter of it being in the right place at the right time and someone with the right equipment being there at the right place in the right time. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's what it's all about, basically. Absolutely. Uh, tell people a little bit about The Water Horses of Loch Ness. Your book came out last fall. Uh, where can they pick it up and, you know, what is it, what is it all about? Obviously, it's, <laughs> I think we've kind of given them a pretty good idea here over the last couple hours, but, you know, give them a little thumbnail on it and, uh, you know, what they can look forward to in the book. Well, my, my blog site, didn't actually go much into the folklore of Loch Ness. I tend to concentrate on modern era. But this book, uh, I put it out in last autumn. Uh, basically, it covers the era before Nessie, before 1933. It looks back to prehistory. It identifies the, the tales of water horses, kelpies. Identifies the the number of lochs, which have traditions. We have a map. Uh, I talk about Loch Ness. I talk about the, the concentration of actually kelpies and water horses around that area, which if I was supernatural, I'd call it a kelpie portal. But uh, that's just me uh, going beyond myself here. And I'm just, I go through it 
from uh, St. Columba, the various tales of him and the water horse. Uh, I go through to uh, Cromwellian times, Georgian times, 17th century, 18th century, Victorian times, all these stories about the Loch Ness Monster, or as it was called back then, the Echusk, which is Gaelic for water horse, or Anishag is, is the other Gaelic term for the thing of the thing of Loch Ness. Uh, going through all these stories, some of these only came to light during the next era when, when people in their 70s or 80s came forward to tell their stories about what they'd seen, what their grandparents had seen, going back to, you know, way back. Yeah. And uh, we bring it up to date. We, we look at the, the the psychology of the folklore. Yeah, we, we go through the symbolism of the water horses, the, the archetypes, the mythology. We, we actually compare and contrast the Victorian academics with the modern skeptics. Because when people were talking about seeing water horses back in the Victorian times, actually you'll find out that the, the academics who wrote the books on these were saying that they were just seeing what waves and rocks in the water. So you're getting some kind of parallelism between then and now. Uh, we, and we, we end up, the book talks about the supernatural aspect of the water horse and how that is carried through and a thread of belief through to the modern day. I talked about Ted Holliday and his psychic monsters. Mm-hmm. You know, cause that's, that's thread of supernatural Nessies. What stroke water horses actually continues to this day, stretching back centuries. Uh, and that's the book. Awesome. And where can people pick that one up? Just go to Amazon.com and search for the Water Horses of Loch Ness. There you go. And there's links all over uh, all of America and your website as well, so people can find it pretty easily. And, of course, the website is lochnessmystery.blogspot.com. Uh, what's next for you? What do you have planned in the future here for your Loch Ness research? Well, I'm going up in April. I've got some night vision equipment. I've got trap cameras. I'm going to maybe strap a few things to trees, not myself. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to walk away and leave them because I love this automated hunting. I can go back to the comfort of my sitting room. Uh, night vision I'm still working with because, you know, it, I believe it comes out at night, but at the same time you've got to trade off the the night conditions. Uh, so I'm going up there. Uh, I'm thinking about another book. I think basically one day my website is going to disappear because I will always be here. <laughs> at some point, at some point, I'm just going to put it on Kindle for future generations, you know, to prove that not everyone was a skeptic at that time, and uh, just to bring it all together. And I'm finding out new stuff all the time. I was talking to a lady who, who has seen our great, 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 great grandmother had seen the monitor in about 1820. And she's got Gaelic journals uh, talking about these things. So I'm just trying to develop these threads, bring them together, continue to research folklore, and continue to gather, you know, new stories, bring it all together holistically into this thing called the Loch Ness Monster. So, yeah, awesome. the work continues. Excellent, excellent. Well, Roland, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show here, giving us so much time and insight into this creature. I mean, what I had known about the Loch Ness Monster two hours previous, 
pales in comparison to what I've picked up in the last few hours. So I can't thank you enough. And really, as a lover of the paranormal, I can't thank you enough for keeping this story alive, keeping this creature proverbially alive in the minds of people who are interested in this mystery. As I said, it sort of moved down the proverbial power rankings of uh, the paranormal over the last few years, but it is a staple of the field and something that I'm glad that you're keeping alive and keeping people thinking about this mystery because it is a tremendous mystery and there's really something to the mystery of the Loch Ness Monster and it's been a great conversation and uh, I'm going to pick up Water Horses of Loch Ness myself and hopefully talk to you again in the future to delve into this sort of uh, pre-modern era of the Loch Ness Monster. But once again, thanks for giving us so much time. Best of luck in your pursuit of answers to the Loch Ness Monster mystery. And, you know, kudos to you for your tremendous work, really uh, reviving interest in the creature. Yeah, it's been great talking to you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 7. Big, big thanks to Roland Watson for coming on the show giving us so much time and providing a wealth of insight into the Loch Ness Monster. Be sure to check out his website, www.lochnessmystery.blogspot.com, as well as his book, The Water Horses of Loch Ness. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback, and we've got three short ones here as I get my listener feedback legs back under me. Here is the first one, comes from Jason, no hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. Is there any news on William K. Zabel? I've been listening to past shows. I've heard you are calling him. Email me back if you have a chance. Your buddy, Jason. Well, I'll do you one better, Jason. I'll read your email here at the end of the program. I figure since it is sort of the beginning of Season 7, we may as well take care of the many, many Zabel inquiries that I get all the time. No update on William Zabel, folks. Unfortunately, I have not heard anything from him or about him in the last year or so, at least. Ever since he went missing, he has been really an enigma that has confounded many BOA audio listeners. Hopefully, someday we will hear from William Zabel, but for now, consider this my latest update on William Zabel. No information found, unfortunately. Next email comes from Vicky. No hometown listed. Here's what she has to say. Aloha, Tim. I enjoy your interviews. Please get Jeffrey Mishlove on your show and make him tell you about Ted Owens. I was listening to a David Sereda interview the other day, and he mentioned seeing UFOs in the Bay Area around the time that Owens was there manifesting them. This is a really underreported story. Ted Owens, the PK man, that deserves more scrutiny. Thanks, Vicky. I will confess here, Vicky, I have no idea about this Ted Owens story, but I have put it into the basket for further examination. Vicky was just one of many, many BOA audio listeners who sent in guest requests during the hiatus, so I'm Pouring through those as I speak, looking through the various guest suggestions, I'm sure I will get many of the guests on the program here in Season 7, and I will definitely look into Jeffrey Mishlove and more about this Ted Owens story. Final email comes from Garrett in Eugene, Oregon, and he asks, Do you know of podcasts that cover paranormal topics 
like those covered on your program, but in Spanish. If not, can you direct me toward anyone who might know? When I'm not listening to your podcast, I study Spanish. I figured a Spanish podcast would allow me to kill two birds with one stone. Thank you for your great program, Garrett in Eugene, Oregon. Thank you for writing in, Garrett. I'm really uh, impressed with your unique and interesting inquiry. I'm sure there must be podcasts out there in Spanish, but I'm totally unaware of that as well. This is a very unhelpful edition of BOA Audio Listener Feedback. I apologize <laughs> for that. Uh, that's just the way the emails crumble, I guess, here on this edition of the program. I directed Garrett to Scott Corrales. If anyone knows of a paranormal podcast in Spanish, it would definitely be Scott Corrales, but maybe there's a BOA Audio listener out there who knows of a Spanish paranormal podcast that we can pass along to Garrett. Kudos to you, Garrett, for taking the bull by the horns. Learning Spanish, trying to understand a Spanish paranormal podcast, I think I would be completely in the dark on that, but it sounds like something that he would enjoy quite a bit. So anyone out there who knows of such a program, please pass it along to me, and we will get it into the hands of Garrett. That wraps up BOA Audio Listener Feedback here for the week. Big thanks to Garrett, Vicky, and Jason for writing in. Unfortunately, I really didn't have any answers for any of those questions. I didn't realize until now how unhelpful this would be. But you got your emails on the show, and uh, your stories are out there for people who may be able to help us out. If you'd like to be a part of future installments of BOA Audio Listener Feedback, here are the ways to do it. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or head on over to the website banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button or join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T-H-E-U-S. OFE.com. It is BOA's Paranormal Playground. Lots of great discussion there on the paranormal as well as pop culture. And of course, I am on Twitter and Facebook, so just punch in Benal, B I N N A L L. Then you'll find me on there. Feel free to follow me, befriend me, or poke me. I'd be happy to have you as part of our online circle of friends. And I guess I should plug one more thing, and that is the Been All of America page on Facebook. I've been trying to really get behind that and uh, post some new and interesting stuff on there. So if you've not liked Been All of America on Facebook, just head on over to my profile. You'll see the linkage there right at the top. Click on that and then like Been All of America on Facebook, and you'll have access to a whole bunch of cool insights about the program. Up next, it's time to thank the infamous and esteemed BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Sana, Richard Thomas, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Since the last time you heard from me, we got a new piece up at the website from Leslie, and we got a whole bunch more in the pipeline, so stay tuned to Banal of America for that. It's actually only been a short period of time since I posted the season premiere, so I don't have any updates on the revamp of Benal of America, but we're hoping to get it at you before the summertime kicks off in earnest. So stay tuned to Benal of America for great columns from the BOA staff, as well as really cool stuff 
from yours truly. We say it week in and week out here on the program. If you're not reading the columns at the website and you're only listening to BOA Audio, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Up next, it is the time in the program where I ask all of the folks out there who have stuck through to the very end of the show to dig into your pockets and help us out by making a donation to the BOA franchise. Before I start my weekly begging here, I want to thank the amazing folks who made donations following the season premiere of Season 7. Truly humbling and awe-inspiring donations from a whole bunch of people. I'm not going to name names because many folks like to remain anonymous, but allow me to humbly thank you all. I was just blown away by your donations. Nonetheless, I would like to keep the program in the black here as we roll along in Season 7. You just heard a two-hour-plus conversation with a guest coming at us all the way from Scotland. Believe me, my eyes bugged out when I got the phone bill for that episode, so we could always use more help. How do you help us out? That's simple. You can head on over to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust the internet and you want to make a snail mail donation, that is quite simple to do as well because we have got a BOAPO box. And here is the address for that Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass 01866. And you spell Pinehurst, P I N E H U R S T. And the complete address can be found at Benall of America right under the PayPal button. Of course, we do have two caveats here for folks sending stuff to the P.O. Box. First of all, if you are mailing a donation, please make it payable to Tim Benal and not Benal of America, since my bank will not cash those donations. And if you send us a correspondence to the P.O. Box, even if it is not a donation, maybe it's just a letter with your thoughts, please include some means for me to get back to you and continue our conversation, or thank you for the donation. As always, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benall of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next time on BOA Audio, we have got an absolute barn burner of an episode for you, my friends. We are welcoming back our old friend Jason Offit for a lengthy discussion on the many odd and creepy stories that can be found at his blog, From the Shadows. I spent the afternoon just digging into From the Shadows and picking out some of the weirdest stuff I could find. And Jason shares these tales, and then we sort of dig into them, try and get behind what really is going on in these stories. I heard from somebody this past week who had listened to the first Jason Offit episode, and they just said they were totally creeped out by the Shadow People discussion. Well, this one here is ten times wilder, my friends. We're going to be hearing stories about wicked priests, harlequin entities, gnome-like creatures, black-eyed kids and black-eyed people, a fey girl, time travelers, a haunted shopping mall, Gravity Hill, 
a man who allegedly dated an alien and much, much more crazy stuff, wild stories. And as always, when we bring our good friend Jason Offit back to the show, just a bunch of laughs and an overall jam session feeling. This is a program you're going to want to bring with you on a camping trip when you're sitting around the fire if you want to spook people out. Jason Offit returns to BOA Audio for a thrilling conversation next time on BOA Audio. And on that note, we close the book on this installment of the program. Big, big thanks once again to Roland Watson for coming on the show. Thanks to Jason, Vicky, and Garrett for writing in for BOA Audio listener feedback. And, of course, enormous thanks to all you great folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners. I was just overwhelmed by your excitement and support of BOA Audio Season 7 when we kicked off last week. I hope that your patience has been paid off, not only with the season premiere, but also with this week's edition of the program and the many, many more mind-bending episodes we have lined up for you in the weeks and months to come. You folks are the fuel that drives the BOA machine. I would not be able to do this without your support and encouragement. So thank you, thank you, thank you for everything that you do. And, of course, thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.